Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. by StarCityGames.com. Not only are they the home of the top content and coverage on the web, they're also the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies. For more information, visit StarCityGames.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line is Ethan Sachs. Ethan, how's this past week been for you? Ben, I have something very exciting to tell you. What is that? I went golfing for the first time ever on Friday. Oh my God, I would pay so much money <laughs> to see the video of that happening. Uh, well, there may be some videos. Uh, I am atrocious as a surprise to no one. Um, and it was so long. It took like <laughs> five hours. Did you did you have a cart? It, so the course that my friend and I played on is like, it's not like a fancy country club. So there's no golf carts. You have to walk the whole thing. Yeah, that's what I do. I walk when I play. Oof. Exhausting. By the end, I was just like, <laughs> like, I mean, basically every hole was like 12 strokes, 13 strokes. You're a champ for playing 18 on your first time out. That's not normal. Yeah, yeah no, no. It w- I could tell it was not normal. But I did bogey one hole. So it's Ooh, pretty good. Nice. Yeah. All right. That That's my sports for the year. Sports. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm doing great. Fresh off the first marching band contest of the season, we dominated the other band that was in our class and moving onwards and upwards, learning part two of our show this coming week and loving what's going on with life. Attaboy. Uh, All right. So we've got a pretty exciting episode. Uh, This was uh, from the brainchild of Mr. Ben Werney here. We're going to be talking about drafting the bot way this week. Uh, Really excited to dive into that. But before we do, we've got some business to attend to. Ben, do you have any updates to that trophy leaderboard? I'm still hanging out in the same place in MTGO. I have done some arena drafting in preparation for this episode. I'm now up to 18 best of one arena drafts, 75 and 46 overall record in single games, four trophies and a 61% win rate. Nice. Uh, yeah, I'm just slumming it with uh, the cubes on Magic Online these days. I've got uh, finished out strong with Grixis Cube. I was third place on the trophy leaderboard for Grixis Cube. Nice. So that was pretty sweet. Uh, and now I'm just getting crushed by Modern Cube, aka Garbage Cube. Is the Red Green Garbo still good? I haven't been able to draft it once, so I don't know. I, I hope so. I keep seeing Bloodbraid Elf pass me by. I'm like, I can't get into this deck. I don't know what's going on. People are on to our secret tech. I guess so. All right, some business to attend to here. First things first, we got to talk about our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Lords of Limited, where folks can give back to the show if they so choose. You get access to the Lords of Limited Discord. You can get access to our show notes before the episodes come out. You can see the show in written form. Show notes are detailed this week. What do we got? Six pages, seven pages. We go crazy each and every week, so you can get those before the episodes come out. You can get access to spreadsheets where you can see our drafts and draft logs and our 
stay up to date with our records on, on Arena and Magic Online. You can also get access to some private sections of the Discord, and you can even get access to me and Ben for monthly coaching sessions. All of that is available to you at different tiers on the Patreon, and we want to welcome each and every person the first week that they join. So this week, we're going to welcome Max, Nathaniel, Oscar, Christopher, Stephen, Joshua, Keegan, Javier, Joe, Tommy, Spakerman, Jason, Sean, The Memory Jar Podcast, Richard, Anthony, Cameron, and Colin. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We really appreciate your support. Yeah, cannot say thank you enough. And as a reminder, coming up on a new set here, this is the best possible time to get into the Lords of Limited Discord. The spoiler season channel in our Discord is already flowing freely. I go there every day, check out the spoilers. I don't even have to hunt through Twitter to find the spoilers. Everybody's posting them there, discussing them as they get spoiled. And I am confident, again, that when Eldraine releases, Lords of Limited Discord is going to break it wide open. Yeah, you won't want to miss being in the Discord for the start of a new format. We are also now partnering with Coalesce Apparel and Design, as has been happening for the last couple months. Magic's newest apparel company as part of this. We have a gift code for you to get 10% off your order, which pertains to any apparel on their website. And that code is LOL, all caps. Again, that's LOL, all caps for 10% off your order. We've got your hashtag I'm with Ben, hashtag I'm with Ethan shirts there for Lords of the Minute. And I believe they just released a Boros Legionnaires University shirt, something to that effect. They've gone through all the guild pairs and Boros was their last one. So if you like swinging, go there, check that out and hop on and get your Boros shirt today. Yeah, nice. I do not like attacking, so I will not be supporting the Boros Legion. (laughs) All right, Ben. So we've got a really sweet episode I want to get to. But first things first. It's very exciting. It's preview time. It's spoiler season. We've got some Throne of Eldraine preview cards, official Lords of Limited cards. Thank you again to Watsi for hooking us up here with these free preview cards. Ben, let's dive in. What's the first one we're going to talk about? First one here is Brimstone Trebuchet, two in a red for an artifact creature wall. It's one three with defender and reach. Tap Brimstone Trebuchet deals one damage to each opponent. And whenever a knight enters the battlefield under your control, untap Brimstone Trebuchet. What do you think about this guy? I mean, this has Ethan Sachs written all over it. It's a defender. It like pings. It's got like build around possibilities. And this is a common. So it feels like you can get them. The one thing that I'm a little wary about is that it has three toughness and not four toughness. And feels like one three may be a little small for this kind of card. That's kind of what I was thinking as well. I'd be way more excited if it was a 1-4. I do think it's cool that it has reach as a red card. Yeah. I think maybe if there are some 2-1 flyers, people are going to be accidentally jamming into this card. Mm -hmm. Well, so you see that it says whenever a knight enters the battlefield under your control, you untap it. And we've got some knight tribal stuff going on in this format. Next up, we've got Burning Yard Trainer. Move over, Charging Monster Sword. This is four and a red for a 3-3 human knight. It has trample and haste. And when it enters the battlefield, another target knight you control gets plus two, plus two and gains trample and haste until end of turn. The haste part probably not going to be super relevant because then you're talking about insanely large amounts of mana. But very cool that you can spread out your your power and your trample between this and another creature. Yeah, I mean, this is a small guy, but I think it's going to be pretty backbreaking a lot of the time. This isn't uncommon, so you're probably not going to see it a ton. But I think this is going to be a big swinging card in this format. Better or worse than Charging Monsters are? Obviously worse. Right. That's what I think as well. But I still think a good card, despite being worse than Charging Monster Sword, Charging Monster Sword was absurd. Next up, we've got Joust. Wouldn't be knights and wouldn't be fairy tales if there weren't a jousting tournament. Joust is one in a red for a sorcery. Choose target creature you control and target creature you don't control. The creature you control gets plus two, plus one until end of turn. If it's a knight, then those creatures fight each other. That's very flavorful. Cannot imagine a more flavorful use of the word joust on a magic card. I can't believe they haven't used the word joust for a magic card yet. Yeah. <laughs> Feels like they really lucked out here. So this is an uncommon. Seems pretty good. I'm 
interested to see that red has the fight spell here. I'll be curious to know like what green's removal suite looks like. Yeah, and this is uncommon, so red might still have some typical burn at common. Who knows, maybe a mage from fairy tale land is going to spin up a fireball. Yeah, for sure. I, this seems like you're going to only really want to be playing this if you can consistently get the buff from it. It'll also depend like how red's creatures match up against the rest of the field. Like if red maybe has some bigger creatures this time around, just like big dumb stuff at like four mana and five mana that maybe joust is is okay. I think this is also considerably worse because it's only plus two plus one instead of plus two plus two. So only getting that one toughness boost is kind of tough because red's creatures usually have higher power than they do toughness anyway. Yes, exactly. So it'll be I think there's a lot to see before this card like gets a grade slapped on it. I could see it being anywhere from C to like B minus. Yeah, other than the burning yard trainer, uh, we've got one more card to talk about, but it feels like all these cards like will depend on the amount of knights you can get and then how good that deck will even be. Right. So what's our last card here? Last card here is Jousting Dummy. This is two mana for a 2-1 artifact creature, Scarecrow Knight. And you can pay three to give Jousting Dummy plus one, plus zero until end of turn. Seems eh. Yeah, I mean, wait, this is better than Prismite, right? I mean, it's got like a relevant creature type and like can trade up on blocks. But uh, I'm a little wary about what like X1 hate looks like in this format. I think, you know, that's one of the takeaways we've had from the past few sets and crash courses is like X1s don't generally get the job done. I like that this can pump and trade up but three mana that's not even smoke breathing ben i don't know what that is it's like <laughs> secondhand smoke breathing <laughs> it's not good definitely not good i think but the fact that it can't trade up is real i think this card's probably going to be filler would be my guess mm-hmm. and then if you care about knights like maybe you're like happy to see them wheel but otherwise yeah i think it's just filler right so those right. are it. We got our four Eldraine preview cards. Thank you again so much to Watsi for including us in spoiler season. That has been a blast ever since they started doing that. Yep, absolutely. All right, Ben, let's dive in here. What are we going to be talking about first? We're talking about an episode about how to draft with the bots. And you came up with the sickest title for this episode. So we're calling this episode Drafting the Bot Way in homage to Ben S's famous article, Drafting the Hard Way. And we're going to try to lay out several assumptions about the bots that have been true from our experience drafting on Arena in order to attempt to provide a comprehensive set agnostic draft strategy for beating the bots in future formats going forward. So kicking us off here with our first assumption, and I ran a lot of these assumptions by the Lords of Limited Discord before just to make sure we weren't way off base here before we laid out this whole episode based on these assumptions. And assumption number one was by far the most contentious in the Lords of Limited Discord, and it is the following. The bots cannot be trusted to feed you the same color in pack three that they feed you in pack one. Therefore, you're not rewarded as heavily for, quote, drafting the hard way a la Ben S because you will not necessarily get hooked up in pack three. So the idea about being rewarded for drafting the hard way in pack one is that you figure out what the open lane is from your right. Because, you know, the same, you know, people, what, one, two, three seats to your right are going to be passing to you in pack one and pack three. And so if you navigate to be like, you notice, ah, I'm getting these late green cards, pick four, pick five, pick six, like later than I think they should be going, or maybe I'm seeing like a bunch of green cards wheeling even. And then you would assume that since those same people are passing to you in pack three, and you're going to be then cutting green from them going to the right, that then again from the left in pack three, you'll be hooked up with green because you figured out what you were supposed to be doing. And I think you and I have both had the situation more often, much more often than we see in paper or magic online, where that doesn't happen on arena. Right. And I think that's true. And I think after discussion, the general consensus was, yes, sometimes on Arena, you do see the same color being open in pack one and pack three. But I think this thing happens often enough that it's 
different, considerably different from MTGO or paper. It feels like it happens, I don't know, 40% of the time to me, 30% of the time, like way, way more often. I would expect like one out of every 10 drafts maybe to be that messy on MTGO or something. Right. Yeah, you'd have to have people who like had poor drafts and jump chip for some like sick rare in pack three or something. Right. Assumption number two, the bots can be trusted to reliably let certain cards wheel in any specific iteration of the bot programming for a certain set. So as the bots get updated, you need to spend time drafting and observing to see what's changed. But there are going to be cards that are undervalued and you are going to be able to exploit that. Yeah, a little later in the episode, we'll sort of lay out the trends we've seen from a handful of sets in the past and sort of notice how things change and how you want to like sort of predispose yourself to certain strategies or certain colors being more or less open based on what the bots are doing. Assumption number three, in any given update for the bots, certain colors are more consistently quote unquote open because the bots undervalue some key cards of that color. Therefore, it's correct to end up in certain colors most of the time. So, for example, you know, in a given format, blue and green might be undervalued by the bots. And if that's the case, not 100% of the time should you end up in blue and green. But if it's generally accepted that blue and green cards that are good are undervalued by the bots, more often than normal, you should be ending up blue green and you should be attempting to end up blue green. And that should be a key for like tiebreakers for you that should weight certain cards higher or lower for you based on those preferences. And those will be different on arena than they will be in paper on MTGO. And a corollary to this that somebody from the Lords of Limited Discord brought up, I don't remember who, is that sometimes the bots just undervalue one very good card of a color, maybe Mm -hmm. like the best common. And you see that card go late, but you don't see the color going. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So sometimes it can feel like a color is open just because the, the best card of a certain color is going late. But actually that color is not open and just important to be aware of that on Arena as well. Yeah, Yarox Fenlurker from M20, I think was a good example for me early in M20. I was like, oh, I really like this card. This is going seventh, eighth, sometimes wheeling. And I just had to learn to myself, oh, this isn't a signal that black is open. I should stop treating it as such. And like an RNA blade juggler was that card for me. Right. Yeah, for sure. You saw blade jugglers late, but you didn't necessarily see black being open. Assumption number four, it is almost always possible to end up in some combination of the most powerful colors in a given format because drafting with the bots is not self-correcting in the way that drafting in a pot of people is. So you're disincentivized to draft the weakest color or color pairs. So for example, if we take a look at M20, white is generally accepted as the worst color If you're drafting with the bots in M20, you should be trying to not end up white. You want to be slanting your picks to give yourself the best chance to end up in other colors. Because normally the thing about drafting the worst color in a color pair is that you're going to be the only drafter of that color. And that's just not necessarily going to be the case with the bots. They don't necessarily care that white's the worst color. They're just going to take their density of cards and colors and, and do their thing. You know, there's something interesting that happened in a lot of guild drafts and guilds of Ravnica's on best of one right now on arena. And I remember, you know, when we were tracking data from magic online, you know, people's win rates with Selesnia was pretty high, even though it was like generally accepted to be the worst guild, because when people were drafting that deck, it was because it was so stupid open and you were getting like all the best uncommons and really good rares passed to you. And so people's win rate with it was very high, but probably a small sample size. But before there were updates, you know, the first initial 
go arounds of drafting with the bots in Guilds of Ravnica on Arena, you just never wanted to navigate into those decks at all because there was no incentive for you to be like, well, if I'm the only drafter at the table, because it just didn't work that way. Right. And, you know, on MTGR paper, the reverse of that, you would be expecting to be fighting people for the best color pair or the best archetype. And you're not necessarily going to be doing that on Arena. Right. If there's a certain color or color pair that's super deep, let's say, that can support multiple drafters at the table, maybe three, sometimes even four, if like a color pair or or certain colors is really that deep and opened in that way at that table, you know, then you can maybe support that. But on Arena, you may not be fighting with a lot of people like that or a lot of the bots like that. Right. And our last assumption here, assumption number five, cards that are not intrinsically high picks, but that get better in multiples are going to be more powerful and easier to get multiple copies of on Arena than Tabletop or MTGO. Think cards like Fairy Miscreant, Heart Piercer Bow from M20, Gates, Gate Payoffs from RNA, and I'm sure there are examples from other formats as well, but it, it is easier to get catch alls on Arena, and I think catch alls are more powerful. I think this is one of the most exploitable things about drafting on Arena is figuring out what you can reliably wield that's powerful. And it may not be like, you know, these sort of catch all strategies are an example of that, but even just thinking about cards from like War of the Spark, like how late you could get Honor the God Pharaoh when you were in red, just like knowing that you didn't have to prioritize that card, but that you wanted it and you could take something you know, maybe as powerful as it out of the pack and just know I'm going to reliably get like two or three of these at the end of each draft, most likely. So those five assumptions about the bots, and then we're going to try to lay out how to draft the bot way. That's what we're calling this based on those assumptions. But I think before we get to that, we want to lay out, you know, sort of the draft spectrum. And I think on one end of the spectrum is Ben S's drafting the hard way. Like I think if we're thinking about a spectrum from one to 10, that's a 10. And Mm -hmm. I think drafting the easy way would be what Ben S advocates against doing, which is just coming to the table sort of with some preconceived notions. So can you just briefly outline what drafting the hard way is for our listeners? Yeah. So again, we've referenced this article quite a bit on the show. We're really happy to have Ben on a few weeks ago. And if you haven't read this article, I would highly recommend Googling it and, and taking a read. It's really, really one of the best limited pieces out there. So drafting the hard way, come to the draft with zero preconceived notions about what you're going to draft. You take the best card out of the first pack, regardless of color. And you're really sort of evaluating that for maybe the first few picks, just like what's the best card in a vacuum. And then when you consider future picks, you're weighing the value of what you already have versus what you could gain by potentially switching to a new color. And you're trying to constantly figure out what the open colors are that your neighbors are passing to you so that you can end up in that color pair and ultimately draft the best deck for your seat. And on the other end of the spectrum, we've got drafting the easy way. And there's several ways to think about this. The first of which is just drafting the color pair of your first few picks, regardless of whatever else happens in the draft. Like maybe you open a blue rare, you pick a blue card, and then you see a good red card. You pick a red card and you're drafting blue red the rest of the way, even if those colors aren't necessarily open for you. Another way would be forcing a color pair from the very beginning because you like to draft blue white, for example. Like I love blue white flyers. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to draft blue white no matter what happens. Or I love black. I'm going to draft black no matter what happens. So just bringing preconceived notions about how the draft will go to the table because you have a specific plan before you've sat down at the table. That's drafting the easy way. And I think, you know, we, we've talked a lot about drafting with preferences on the show. And I do think that's a really important concept and an advanced concept. And we're saying, you know, we want to be blue white. So but our drafting with preferences is we want to give ourselves the best chance to end up in blue white. But if it's not there, we're going to move off of it. 
So I think that's the difference between drafting the easy way and what we've outlined with drafting with preferences. There was some disc, there was some discussion in Discord about that because I think when Ben S was on LR recently, he was talking about you know not coming to the table with any preferences. But I think it's it's you know you're trying to, the difference is when he's saying coming to the table with preferences, he's saying I want to draft white red. I'm going to draft white red no matter what. I think that's what he's referencing, and we're we're referencing a totally different draft strategy with just the same words right like drafting with preferences is about recognizing what you do best as a magic player and also recognizing what is the best in the set and sort of like figuring out where those overlap and trying to give yourself out to doing that so if like the grixis color pairs are the best in a format for example like they were in war of the spark you wanted to like give yourself out to navigating into one of those three decks if possible but if you're being hit over the head with white and green cards you're not going to ignore those signals right absolutely and so i think if you've got a framework for where drafting the hard way and drafting the easy way are now we're going to get into drafting the bot way and I think that falls somewhere on the spectrum between drafting the hard way and drafting the easy way. And I think if, if you, again, if you think those as opposite ends of a one to 10 linear scale with drafting the hard way being a 10, I think drafting the bots is somewhere around a 7.5 or so in my head. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it is really similar to Ryan Sachs's concept of drafting with preferences. But rather than, you know, trying to give yourself the best chance to end up in the best colors or the best chance to end up in, you know, the best colors in the best style of deck that you're going to pilot the best. It's it's coming more from how can I give myself the best chance to take advantage of what the bots are doing wrong in this draft format. Exactly. So the goal of drafting the bot way or DBW, as we may refer to it future in the future of the episode, is to optimize your chances of consistently drafting the most powerful deck possible on arena draft in and draft out. So to do this, you want to give yourself the best chance to end up in the most powerful colors or strategies that are undervalued by the bots, because that's how you're going to reliably get past the best cards. So imagine sitting down to a paper draft where you knew with reasonable certainty that people were going to undervalue the best red cards. Or for Ben, if he sits down next to me, he knows he's going to get hooked up with white cards. (laughs) It would make sense, right, if you knew that you were going to get hooked up with red cards to try your hardest to draft red in your seat. Or similarly, that people at your table would undervalue white, red, and blue cards. It would make sense to try and end up in one of those color pairs. And I think, you know, given that the bots do undervalue cards or colors, you can know those things ahead of time going into an arena draft. And on the flip side of the coin, imagine if you knew black was the worst color in a format by a noticeable margin, and you knew sitting down to draft that people in your pod were going to be drafting black cards, including some of the top black commons. You would not want to draft black in that seat, and with very good reason. You know, unless you open some black bomb, you don't want to fight with people over the worst color. This was very true at the start of M20 on Arena, and that black was very overvalued by the bot, specifically because murder was a top common. And so we had a lot of people, I remember watching Mike Sigra stream quite a bit, that he would really be wary of getting into black, even when there was like a marked difference between power level of a card that he was considering versus a black card. He would just go, well, I really feel like I'm going to get cut out of black, so I'm going to hedge towards this blue or green card or whatever. So I think the biggest difference between drafting the hard way and drafting the bot way is... You know, when you're drafting the hard way, you don't have any information before you sit down at the table. And I think when you're drafting the bot way, you do have a reasonable amount of information. Certainly once you've done five to 10 arena drafts and talked to other people, for example, in the Lords of Limited Discord about what their experiences have been in the bot drafts, you do have a reasonable amount of information about what's going to happen in the draft or what is likely to happen. So moving on to our next point, 
Uh, because you don't consistently see the same colors in pack three as in pack one, staying open works a little bit differently than it does normally when you're drafting the bot way. So I think, and we've said this before on the show, you're rewarded more for being very deep in one color than you are for taking, you know, the first five, six, seven picks to really feel out what the open color is when you're drafting the bot way. That being said, you can't always do that on arena. And I think it's important to note that as well. Right. So this does a few things. Being deep in one color allows you to take advantage of the bots passing good cards later than they should. If you're spread across three or four colors evenly, you're more likely to try to read signals that aren't there and train wreck. I think this was one of the biggest level up moments for me when I first started drafting on arena. I was just drafting the way I normally would. And I would think, "Ooh, this card's really late. That's a signal. I should move into that. And then I'd see another late card of a different color. And I think, "Ooh, this card's a signal. <laughs> I should move into that color. And I would just end up being spread across four colors and really struggling to find my lane in the draft. So again, I think you really want to try to be locking into your lane, at least of one color as best you can by around, you know, pick six through eight in pack one. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of things you want to think about here. One is that you should not abandon your first pick bomb rares as often on arena, right? Believe almost all the time you can make playables on whatever colors you want to, right? If you really just decide that this is the color pair you think you should be in, you can probably get there on playables. Right. And I don't think that's true on MTGO necessarily. Like if you sat down to an MTGO draft and said, I'm going to draft red green, I think you're liable to, you know, whatever, a third of the time or something, just end up with an unplayable pile that's going to O2 quite hard. And on Arena, if you do that, you sit down and you say, I'm going to draft red green, especially if you know that red green are the undervalued colors, I think you're going to end up getting there almost all of the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the last thing that goes along with this here is that you're incentivized to take C's of a color you already have, maybe over C pluses of colors you don't have. But I think once you get into B minus territory, so maybe like two half gradation letter grade differences, you know, a C to a B minus or a C minus to a C plus, you should start to branch into the new color. I think, you know, just think about replacement value. Is my deck going to miss this card or this color I already have? And if the answer to that's no, you should probably still branch into the new color on Arena. This is in line with something that I think is really important in just like the limited community in general, which is having like a really clear pick order and grades for your cards. And I think this comes from, you know, your own evaluations from seeking out others from, you know, sort of gleaning things from your experiences, other people's experiences. And I think, you know, you and I don't actually put out like a tier list or a pick order list for the sets. I think it's much more like uh, internal for us or instinctual for us. But I think people really need to have solid pick orders so that when you are faced with these kinds of decisions, you can just know, well, like this is a B minus and this is a C and how that's going to be broken in a tie or not based on the color preferences that you have and the color preferences that the bots have. Yep, 100%. Uh, Next up on this list, we've got a point about there are cards in any given update that almost always wheel, and sometimes these are very good cards. Uh, So to take advantage of this, you you really need to draft often. I mean, and if you can't draft a lot, then there are lots of resources out there, you know, tons of people streaming, tons of people making YouTube content, places where there are tier lists or, you know, 17lands.com is a website we've referenced a lot before and has a lot of information like that. But you really need to like glean a lot of opinions and experiences on what's happening on Arena during each of those updates so you can have a really good feel of what's consistently wheeling. I think if you're choosing between two good cards in your archetype and you know one's more likely to wheel based on bot patterns, you're supposed to pick the one that is less likely to wheel in the moment and try to float the other one and wheel it. And I think a lot of times you are going to be rewarded for that. I think 
of of anything that we've gotten from 17 lands there's a person in our discord by misnomer that designed that site and runs it um you can see with consistency that when the bots pick certain cards and that specific cards do wheel almost all of the time yeah i mean i you remember pattern matcher in the first update of m20 on arena felt like almost 100% of the time would wheel. And even though oftentimes it was the best card in the pack to take when it was, you know, pick four, pick five, you just knew like, I don't need to take it now because I know it's going to wheel. And that kind of exploitation is incredibly powerful. Next point here, one aspect of drafting the bot way relies heavily on understanding and identifying those cards that are valuable for a certain deck, but that don't need to be taken at that point in the pack that reflects their value. So if you're talking about these catch alls that we referenced earlier, if you know you're going to wheel every fairy miscreant or every legion conquistador, you don't need to worry about spending picks on them. Whereas against people, you do need to invest real picks in those types of cards, at least the first couple that you take. And then maybe once other people aren't taking them, then you can try to float them in real drafts. Whereas on arena, you just know you're going to get those cards or goblin smuggler in M20 or think any card from any set that has 100% been undervalued. You know you're going to wheel that card, so you don't need to spend a pick on them. And that is a real part of the strategy of drafting the bot way if you're trying to maximize your win rate, trying to game those bots and float the cards that you know you can float that are good for your deck. So we're going to take a look down memory lane through a few sets that we've experienced in the past year or so that have had these sort of big meta shifts with updates. So we can sort of put like concrete examples to these points that we're outlining. So if we talk about Guilds of Ravnica, initially Demir was the optimal guild to draft. And this was primarily because the bots would not take disinformation campaign almost ever, which was one of the most powerful uncommons for that deck. It was like a B plus level card. Yeah. And so you would have a lot of Demir mirrors when you got to your games. You know, you would basically be playing blue-black decks against blue-black decks, or I would say Boros was the other guild that was very easy to navigate towards every draft. You basically never saw green decks in this like first iteration of drafting guilds of Ravnica on Arena. And Izzet was almost never available the, the entire course of the format. It was rare, like 1 in 10, 1 in 15 drafts that the bots would actually pass you Izzet cards because they had to ratchet the pick order because Izzet was the strongest archetype mm -hmm. they had to ratchet the pick order of the bots for the is it cards so highly that it was just almost insanely difficult to get is it period and then i think by the end you know golgari and selesnia were the most open and you could reliably draft and i think boros still right uh, at that point in time too but they they figured out that demir was undervalued and overcorrected and if we take a look at ravnica legions initially this was the watergate scandal and the gate <laughs> deck was the best deck to draft initially because you knew you could wheel almost every gate from every single pack and part of what made drafting the gate deck tricky in real life was that you had to spend legitimate picks on gates and when you knew you didn't have to do that on arena it was just you know everyone could do it and that was what you were supposed to be doing 100 percent. i don't think there was any discussion about that i think it was generally accepted among the community that if you wanted to win you drafted gates yeah i remember sam black talking on pro points about drafting the deck initially and he was like just you want to end up with like 14 gates and three basics so that you want to fire off your gates ablaze or gatebreaker ram on three you at least have an untapped land or two in your deck to be able to do that but like that was the deck to draft and there was really no reason to do anything else Right. And then later in the format, as the format matured, I think Clear the Mind and Dovin's Acuity became a huge part of the metagame as well. Once that deck was discovered and you knew you could wheel Dovin's Acuities and Clear the Minds, that deck just was sort of a menace to play against. And you played a lot of those mirrors as well. Yeah. Moving on to War of the Spark. This set was a little less exploitable, but Grixis decks were the best decks to draft in this format by a pretty significant margin. I think like Red, Black, Blue, Black, and 
black red were tier one above the rest. And while there weren't really exploitable strategy like the ones above, like drafting the gate deck or just like forcing Demir because you knew you could get disinformation campaign, you could really always or almost always navigate towards one of those three decks fairly easily if you wanted. And this was due to not just like the power level of these color pairs, but also due to the fact that there were a few cards that were quite powerful that you could consistently get late or could wheel. We talked about Honor the God Pharaoh previously. Toll of the Invasion was another really strong card, and Dread Malkin were cards severely undervalued by the bots. Your boy, Dread Malkin. Yeah, card's so good. And then fast forward to M20. Initially, we talked about earlier, Black was fairly undraftable because of how highly the bots valued murder. And at that point in time, Teamer Elementals was the name of the game. And now it's a bow eat bow world and heart piercer bow <laughs> dominates the format. And I think as a result, one toughness creatures are borderline unplayable in M20 right now. Yeah. So we, we talked about these metagame shift and things like that. Moving on to our next point. As the bots go through more updates and the format matures, I do think Arena starts to feel more real to me and mm-hmm. more like legitimate drafting, only with the occasional random card that's undervalued that makes you aware, okay, I am still just drafting with robots. But I do think, you know, if we think about that linear scale of where drafting the bot way falls between drafting the easy way and drafting the hard way, I think at the beginning of the format, it's much closer to a five or a six, I think there are more likely to be strategies that the bots undervalue that you can go in and say, I'm going to do this and end up with a very, very good deck. And as the bots get updated and it starts to feel more real, you need to move your sliding scale for drafting on arena more towards drafting the hard way, maybe even by the end of a format, ultimately towards an eight or a nine. Yeah, I think so. It's like, uh, think this is the right math term an asymptote, like something that like approaches a line, but never quite get there, you know? I have no idea. All right, I'm going to throw that out there and then people can rage at me if I'm wrong. I feel like that's what arena bot drafting is as it approaches towards the end of the format. It's like, yeah, this is basically right with maybe a few outliers. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. And our last point here, because the metagame differs from paper and MTGO to bot drafting on arena, and and that difference in the metagame happens because the bots undervalue cards or archetypes at various times through the course of the format, that I I do think that card evaluations need to differ between the two platforms. And I think if you don't shift your card valuations between the two platforms, you're actively hurting yourself. So I I think it's important, you know, when you're drafting on arena to be in, okay, I need to value these cards because I know the arena metagame looks like this. And I think when you switch over to MTGO or paper drafting, you need to mentally switch and know that you're switching formats. And I think that caught me a little bit when we went to GP Vegas, because I had been drafting on arena prior to going to GP Vegas, and then we were doing some paper drafts, and it was it was noticeably different. And, you know, I think I was just expecting to be able to get bows. I ended up with a couple weapons missed two times, and I just didn't get the bows because everyone was on a bow craze because of Arena, and they weren't coming around. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I had that same experience. So just recently on Twitter this week, while we were prepping for this episode, I saw a tweet from Greg Kowalski, and I think this is really uh, sort of getting at what we just outlined for drafting the bot way. This is an arena pack one, pick one. And he says, I've got a very interesting pack. Pack one, pick one. Imagine that the rare is poop and he has it blanked out here. What would you pick? Asked a few pros and got many different opinions. Tagging Ben S is the best limited player on earth, but I'm happy to hear everyone's opinion. So if you look at this pack one, pick one on M20, options are the following. You've got a master splicer in the uncommon slot, three and a white for the one, one when ETBs create a three, three colorless golem artifact creature token and golems you control get plus one, plus one. 
Herald of the Sun, four white, white for a 4-4 flyer, and you can pay three and a white to put a plus one, plus one counter on another target creature you control with flying. And I think the only other card in consideration for me is Lavakin Brawler, three and a red for the 2-4, and whenever it attacks, it gets plus one, plus oh until end of turn for each elemental you control. What would you be on here? Yeah, I think I'm on Master Splicer here, and I know there's like considerations between Arena and MTGO, but I think that Master Splicer is enough better than Lavakin Brawler for me. So I would say Master Splicer is a B, probably, and I do think it's better than Herald of the Sun. And I think Lavakin Brawler is a C plus, and maybe in the right deck it's a B minus. Um, so maybe it's closer than I think, but just on raw power level, I think that the difference there is enough for me that I would be on Master Splicer. And see, I'm going to disagree with you, which is where I think drafting on Arena and M20 is super interesting. Mm-hmm. I think on, in paper, I'm 100% taking Master Splicer 10 out of 10 times because I think it's the best card in the pack. And that's my approach to paper drafting or MTGO drafting. Whatever, I should say MTGO, who's drafting in paper? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but on Arena, I'm on Lavakin Brawler here because in my mind, Master Splicer is a B minus, you know, like pulls me into white, but not crazy strongly. And I do think the card's a B power level, but I downshifted a little bit because I don't really want to be white, and I think white's the worst color. And then Lavakin Brawler, I think, is a solid C+. And if you get there, I do think it's really a B- minus in some red decks. And I think you're more likely to get hooked up in red. And with Goblin Smuggler being undervalued, if you pick up the Lavakin Brawler here, you can count on getting some Goblin Smugglers. And I think just slant yourself towards better chances of drafting a better deck if you take the Lavakin Brawler here, pack one, pick one on Arena. I'm going to throw out one more consideration here, and this is something that I maybe overvalue on Arena, but I'm very concerned with what's going to be on the wheel and trying to get power out of that. And in this pack, you've got a Griffin Sentinel and a Daybreak Chaplain as options for you to wheel in white. And in red, or even just thinking about like being in teamer colors for elementals, you don't have much of an option for a card you're going to be happy with wheeling when you take Lavakin Brawler. And I do think there is some amount of weight to that because you sort of know like, yeah, Griffin Sentinels kind of go late on Arena and it'd be possible to see that wheel or Daybreak Chaplain. And I think there's value to that. Uh, That makes sense. I'm still going to stick on Lavakin Brawler. But so you can see it's an interesting pack one pick one an interesting discussion because I think we're both very good drafters and we've got different opinions here. So diving into the flavor of the week here on Arena, we've got Guilds of Ravnica as the ranked draft format. And I've got uh, an imager link here that we'll put in the information where you download the show so you can follow along at home. But we're going to look at a pack one pick one that I think is pretty interesting based on the things that uh, we believe to be true for drafting this format on Arena versus drafting it on Magic Online. So looking at this pack one pick one, you see the following cards in consideration. There's a Boros Guildgate. Probably not in consideration, but should throw that out there. There's Rosemane Centaur. This is three green white for a four four with Convoke and Vigilance. Um, there's a handful of other green commons that you're not interested in, but like I, as I'm going to talk about, like things being important to think about wheeling. There's Generous Stray, Iron Shell Beetle, and Portcullis Vine. Siege Worm. Not really getting there. Um, moving on to the uncommon slot, you've got Pilfering Imp, which is single black for a one one flyer, and you can pay one in a black to sacrifice it to have target player reveal their hand, and you choose a non land card from their hand, and they discard it, and that's as a sorcery. Uh, there's Necrotic Wound, which is a single black for an instant. Uh, it has Undergrowth. Target creature gets minus X minus X until end of turn, where X is the number of creature cards in your graveyard. If that creature would die this turn, you exile it instead. City Watch Sphinx, five and a blue for a five four flyer. When it dies, you surveil two, and your rare is Runaway Steamkin. One in red for a 1-1 one, one. whenever you cast a red spell. Uh, if Runaway Steamkin has fewer than three plus one, plus one counters on it, you put a plus one, plus one counter on it. And you can remove three plus one, plus one counters from it to add red, red, red to your mana pool. So a pretty stacked pack. And I think a lot of interesting things to think about 
especially drafting on arena. Yeah, I think for me, the cards I would come down on the quickest a runaway steamkin is an obvious front runner for me. I think it's a great red card. You're probably not going to be able to get into is it from what I remember from drafting GRN, but I still think it's a very good card in a Boros deck. City Watch Sphinx is in consideration, the fine finisher, you know, not probably as good as Runaway Steamkin. I think Rosemane Centaur is in consideration just because of how underdrafted Selesnya was at the end of the GRN. And assuming the bots are still the same, I would be happy, you know, first picking Rosemane Centaur and trying to stake my claim with the bots as the Selesnya drafter. So I think ultimately this comes down to Runaway Steamkin versus Rosemane Centaur. And I think I would take Runaway Steamkin because I would rather be Boros than Selesnya. And I think Runaway Steamkin is a more powerful card. Plus, I still have the op- option of maybe ending up, you know, and is it if I get lucky? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that's fair. Like, I think for me on MTGO, I'm just slamming Runaway Steamkin 10 out of 10 times as the most powerful card here. And then on Arena, it gets a little trickier for me because, as you mentioned, it's going to be super hard to navigate into is it most of the time, though there is that possibility that you can get there. And then it's going to be good in Boros if your Boros deck is more base red, that's sort of the other thing. And then I look at this pack and I see I'm not going to be wheeling anything in red or really any Boros cards at all. So that sort of is a knock against it to me. And City Watch thinks similarly because, you know, we think is it is really hard to navigate into. You have to think about it like it's a blue black gold card here most of the time. And you can also think about, you know, I don't think it's crazy. I think it is crazy to do this on Arena, but on MTGO, you know, Necrotic Wound and Pilfering Imp are sort of like Golgari role players. And so I don't think it's crazy to think about, well, I could take one of these and maybe one of them wheels, but that's never going to happen on Arena. So I don't think that's a consideration at all. And then I think about, well, I could take Rosemane Centaur and wheel one of these green common creatures and Iron Shell Beetle really could wheel out of this pack. And that would be awesome because that's one of the best two drops in green that you can get. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So I I mean, I just think that there's a lot to discuss here that would not be in discussion at all on Magic Online. On Magic Online, it's like, well, you just take Steamkin, period. And on Arena, I think there's a lot more to unpack here. I absolutely 100% agree. I also, something popped into my head while you were discussing that about the Greg Kowalski pack one pick one we had. Mm -hmm. So you were saying, you know, you've got chances of floating a white card and you don't have chances of wheeling a red card because there just weren't any good cards in the pack. Mm -hmm. And I think this is another difference between Arena and MTGO. I think on on MTGO, you could say, well, you're even you're cutting red. But to the bots, I don't think you're necessarily really cutting red. There isn't really any advantage to cutting a color. But I do think there maybe is the disadvantage of, you know, theoretically, the supposedly, you know, Ryan Spain's been on LR and saying that, you know, the bots try to get a density of a color and then lock in their color pairs. If you're passing all these white cards, maybe you're upping the chances that more bots are going to be drafting white. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. And I think there's this other idea about, you know, we talk about the bots can't reliably feed you the same color in pack one and pack three. I think also they can't reliably pick up on, hey, I'm cutting red from you, so you should hook me up with red in pack two. I just don't feel like that happens. I agree 100%. All right, so to wrap things up here, we've got an M20 roundtable, and we're going to go through this like it's M20, but I also think we're going to try to go through this with letter grades as well, so that maybe this can be applied, you know, to future sets, you know, based on gradations and just thought processes for some of those tenants we've outlined for drafting the botway. So Ethan, would you like to take a seat at the roundtable? I sure would. So pack one, pick one, you're on arena. This is M20. See the following cards as options. There's a reduced to ashes, four and a red for the sorcery, deals five damage to target creature. If that card would, if that creature would die this turn, exile it instead. 
There's a Eurox Wave Crasher, three and a blue for the 4-4. When it enters the battlefield, return another creature you control to its owner's hand. Another uncommon Thrashing Brontodon, one green green for the 3-4 Dinosaur, and you can pay one, sacrifice it, destroy target artifact or enchantment. And your rare is Starfield Mystic, not really in consideration. One and a white for the 2-2 enchantment spells you cast cost one less to cast. Whenever an enchantment you control is put into a graveyard from the battlefield, put a plus one plus one counter on Starfield Mystic. Yeah, so I think it's really between Thrashing Brontodon and Yerox Wave Crasher here. And we're just going to be approaching this first pack like it's an MTGO pack, I think. There's no color considerations here. I think we would be happy to be in green or blue. And so I would give Thrashing Brontodon B, maybe even B plus status. And Yerox Wave Crasher, I'd probably give B minus status too. I agree. And I think Thrashing Brontodon is just the pick on power level. And because it's in a color that's fine to draft on Arena, you're happy doing that here and you snap it up. Moving on to pack one, pick two, see the following cards as options. Best green card in the pack is Netcaster Spider, only green card in the pack for that matter. Tuna green for the two, three reach. And whenever it blocks a creature with flying, Netcaster Spider gets plus two plus O until end of turn. There's a Gorging Vulture, two and a black for a two, two flyer when it ETBs with the top four cards of your library into your graveyard. You gain one life for each creature card put into your graveyard that way. And in the uncommons, there's a Master Splicer, three and a white for the one, one when it ETBs make a three, three Golem token and Golems you control get plus one, plus one. I mean, Master Splicer is just going to be the contentious white card here for M20 for all, all of eternity here. Uh, you know, I think Master Splicer, again, I would give a B and maybe you can knock it down to a B minus because uh, it's white. But there's nothing else really to consider here. Netcaster Spider is maybe even a secret green black card. I'm not crazy about it. And I think it's basically a C. And Gorging Vulture, I think, is important to a lot of black decks, but again, is like a C, maybe C+. But there's just too much of a gradation difference between Master Splicer and the rest of the pack for you to navigate this any differently than you would on Magic Online. Right. And so for people that are listening to this that aren't familiar with M20, color rankings probably something like you know, white's definitely the worst and then I think reds, probably red, green, and blue are near the top. And then mm-hmm. maybe black lagging behind them slightly. But pretty much anything is acceptable to draft other than white. You In, on, in paper drafts, you, you need to be heavily incentivized to be white. And you want to probably be either the only white drafter or one of two white drafters before you're really happy drafting the color. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, Master Splicer, I think as you know, a B minus over the other cards that are C's is the right thing to do here, even though it's in the worst color drafting with bots. Moving on to pack one, pick three, see the following cards as considerations. There's a shock single red for the instant deals two damage to any target. Best green card in the pack is Mammoth Spider, four and a green for the three five with reach. There's a gorging vulture hanging around still a frost links. Two and a blue for the 2-2. Elemental Cat, when ETBs tap target creature and opponent controls, that creature doesn't untap during its controller's untap step. And that's really it that's sticking out here. Yeah, and so here you're probably going to have to draft the hard way a little bit and can't really draft the bot way yet, right? We can't really get deeper into a color. I think Shock is the best card in this pack by a fairly significant margin. I think it's probably B- minus level. You know, it's one of the best removal spells in the set. It's in a good color. And it's just, again, markedly better than taking a Mammoth Spider, which is really a secret green black card in my mind. And so even in that deck, you know, it's a five drop. And so it's not going to be a high pick because you can get a lot of five drops in that color pair. Um, So I'd probably rank it as a C. And Gorging Vulture and Frostlinks again. Frostlinks probably even a C minus in this format, sort of underperformed. And Gorging Vulture is a C. I just think you want to take the best card out of this pack here, and that's going to be Shock. Right. So when you can, you want to get deeper into one color, but we can't. 
And so once you rule out, okay, we don't really have a, a responsible way to get deeper into one color here. We're trying to pick the best card in another color. And I think that's shock by a fair, fair margin. So we snap up shock here. And according to our drafting the botway philosophy, this draft isn't going great on arena, right? We've got no. three cards of three different colors. We would much prefer to have two of one color or three of the same color, even if you were able. Moving on to pack one, pick four, see the following cards as options. There's literal no green cards in the pack. So maybe thinking we have to move off our first pick of thrashing Brontodon. White cards, there's no playable white cards in the pack. So again, our second pick of Master Splicer may be looking like a yikes. We'll have to see. And cards in consideration, Soul Salvage, two and a black for a sorcery. Return up to two creature cards from your graveyard to your hand. There's a Sanitarium Skeleton chilling out, but I think those pretty reliably wheel on Arena. Worth noting for that there for this discussion. Single black for the one, two. Pay two and a black, return Sanitarium Skeleton from your graveyard to your hand. There's a Ripscale Predator as the only red card in the pack after just picking Shock. Ripscale Predator is kind of clunky finisher for red red for the 6-5 with Menace. And then moving into Uncommons, you got a Vampire of the Dire Moon here. Single black for the 1-1 one, one with Death Touch and Lifelink. So again, this is not going the way that we would hope on Arena. But we'll just have to take the best card out of the pack here. And I think we're not really looking at any B minus B level cards that are going to like really pull me into a color. So then we're looking at what are like the best C's or C pluses. And I think Vampire of the Dire Moon really gets there as a, you know, solid early blocker, really good in the grindy black decks because it's a cheap thing you can recur with a Soul Salvage or a Grave Digger or a Blood for Bones. But there's a problem with taking X ones on Arena, Ben. Right. And so this is where the arena metagame differs from the paper MTGO metagame. And I think you need to adjust card evaluations between the two formats. So Vampire of the Dire Moon is C plus B minus, I think, for me Mm. on MTGO. Maybe even bumping closer to B minus. Probably not. Probably just a good C plus. Yeah. Um, But I think this card's borderline unplayable on arena, as are most X1s, because everyone is jamming bows into their decks. So I think you know, Vampire probably gets knocked down to like a C minus D plus a card you're not really happy to have in your deck. And I think that leaves me with Sanitarium Skeleton and Soul Salvage as the two next best cards in the pack. And I think you can count on wheeling Sanitarium Skeletons on Arena. So we're going to try to float that as per our drafting the Botway philosophy. And I think you end up on Soul Salvage here as, you know, a rock solid C, maybe even a C plus in some black decks. Yeah, for sure. So Soul Salvage is the pick, pack one, pick four. And moving on to pack one, pick five, you see the following cards as options. There's a raise the alarm as the best white common. One and a white for the instant, create two one one white soldier creature tokens. And in green, pulse of Marasa, two and a green for the instant, return target creature or land card from a graveyard to its owner's hand, and you gain six life. There's also a Sedge Scorpion in the pack, single green for a 1-1 death touch, but I think, again, that's going to have the same implications that the Vampire of the Dire Moon did for us in the last pack, where it's an X1, and I think it's a liability on Arena, at least in the current version, where Heartpiercer bows are ruling the world. Absolutely. Yeah, and I again, like, you know, on paper, you would take a fifth pick raise the alarm as a signal, and you've already got Master Splicer in your pile, so I think I would go, ooh, maybe the... Past few packs were just a little dry with white, and now I'm seeing this raise the alarm fifth, and maybe I'm going to hop in there. Because while Pulse of Marasa is a card I like quite a bit, raise the alarm is really like the glue that ties the white decks together. And so as the best white common, it's something that I would see fifth pick as a signal. But on Arena, I don't need to do that. I agree. I mean, I think raise the alarm is a C plus probably even as the best white common, not a B minus. No. You really want to be seeing it late before it starts to pull you into white. 
And I do think this gets a knock on Arena as well because of the number of bows running around. I've had several situations on Arena where I've had my raise the alarm tokens and they've just gotten pinged down by a flying, you know, fairy miscreant wearing heart piercer bow. And I've been pretty sad. So I think maybe raise the alarm is not. I think pacifism might be the best white common on Arena. At least currently. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Right. And so Pulse of Marasa, I think, is just a much more appealing option. We've already got the Soul Salvage. We've got a Thrashing Brontodon. Maybe we can get into the green-black grind deck that's open a fair amount of the time on Arena. So I think you land on Pulse of Marasa here as an equally graded card to raise the alarm, but in a much more desirable color, which puts us with two green cards, a black card in Soul Salvage, a red card in Shock, and a white card in Master Splicer heading into pack one, pick six, where you see the following cards as options. Probably the best card in the pack is Pack Mastiff, one in a red for the 2-2, and has Smoke Breathing for all other Pack Mastiffs. One in a red, each creature you control named Pack Mastiff gets plus one, plus O until end of turn. And Centaur Courser, two in a green for the 3-3. There's also a Scuttlemutt, three mana for the 2-2 that taps to add one mana of any color. And Target Creature, you can tap it and have Target Creature become the color of your choice until end of turn as well. Yeah, I mean, I think this is an example of getting deeper into a color and either taking Centaur Courser or just Scuttlemutt as a colorless card that's going to be flexible. I mean, you're not splashing a lot in this format, but if green is your base color, getting Gift of Paradise isn't crazy, having Scuttlemutts, and then maybe you even splash Master Splicer or whatever. Um, So I think it comes down to those two cards. And I would really say this is more of a, a preference pick than anything. Like if you want to get deeper into green, that's fine. If you want to leave yourself a little bit more flexible with Scuttlemutt, then I think that's also a reasonable pick. But I wouldn't take something like Pack Mastiff as a signal here. Right. And I do think Pack Mastiff is the best card in the pack, though. But you get so you you lose so much wiggle room with the bots by taking Pack Mastiff here, I think. That that the difference between like maybe Pack Mastiff's a better C than Centaur Courser is. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, you end up with two red cards then and two green cards, and it's so much harder to navigate through the bots when you're split evenly between red and green versus having three green cards or two green cards in a scuttlemutt. So I think the nod there, the tiebreaker goes to the courser because it's going to give you a lot of flexibility down the rest of the draft. So I ended up taking Centaur Courser here over Pack Mastiff for that reason, because this was really the first time we've been presented with the opportunity to get deeper into one color. And when you are presented with that opportunity, I think you're supposed to take it. I agree. Moving on to pack one, pick seven, you see the following cards as options. A Metropolis Sprite just chilling out here, despite the fact that we've seen minimal to no blue so far this draft. There's the patented Arena Heart Piercer Bow going late, two mana for the artifact equipment. Whenever equipped creature attacks, Heart Piercer Bow deals one damage to target creature defending player controls and has an equip cost of one. There's a Pattern Matcher at Uncommon still in the pack, which is just absurd. Four mana for a 3-3 Golem. When it enters the battlefield, you may search your library for a creature card that has the same name as a creature you control and put it into your hand. This card is a B-, minus, I think, pretty solidly. Some, maybe even a B once you do have multiple matches. I also think because it's colorless, it might get bumped up to a B just because of how flexible it is. Right. Um, should not still be in the pack. And this is a card that's been pretty historically undervalued by the bots. In green, there's a Netcaster Spider is the only green card in the pack. Two and a green for the 2-3 with Reach. And whenever it blocks a creature with flying, Netcaster Spider gets plus 2 plus 0 until end of turn. And best black card in the pack is a Soul Salvage, but we're not particularly interested in picking up our second copy here. Right. And I think this is a perfect opportunity to grab Pattern Match. I mean, you don't have any matches yet, but you get to 
build around it or draft towards it, however you want to think about it as the draft progresses. And, you know, it's colorless, so it's not another green card to get you deeper into green, but it does leave you flexible. And that's that's the idea. That's the philosophy behind what we sort of outline as wanting to get deeper into one color is you just want to leave yourself out to be flexible to what your second color is as the draft goes. Right, because I think the arena drafts are, as a general rule, more unpredictable than people drafting, right? Because people are incentivized to find their lane as quickly as possible and cooperate with their neighbors and stick there. And I just don't think the bots are doing that. And wrapping things up in this draft, so pack one sort of rounded out. We picked up a feral invocation, some medium white playables, got some late green playables as well, got deeper into green with some more C, C minus level cards. Pack two initially flirted with black for a little bit. And ultimately in pack two, we're able to get a lot deeper into green enough so that we our deck was almost primarily green. And ultimately that gave us the flexibility in pack three pick one when we opened a Chandra Awakened Inferno to take it and move into red. And then, you know, we were able to get red to flow and green to flow enough that we drafted a green red deck that ended up going six and three on arena should have gone seven and two, but I punted horrifically in the in my winning in for the seven X. So I think that was that draft was really interesting. I think there was a lot of things to unpack there. And most importantly, you know, we're preaching to try to get deeper into one color with drafting the bot way, but you can't do that with blinders on, right? I think that's what that draft illustrates Mm -hmm. is that you do still need to be flexible and pay attention to the gradation differences between cards. I think there were some interesting gradation differences to note there between you know, paper drafts, MTGO drafts, and bot drafts. Yeah, for sure. All right. So hopefully drafting the bot way philosophy helps you out and helps you navigate your next arena draft. And would be super cool if this episode, you know, sort of becomes arena canon the way way that Ben S's drafting the hard way article has for draft philosophy in general. So hopefully you learned some stuff here and we can continue to refine and improve our philosophy of drafting with the bot way as the bots update and we continue to draft more on arena and learn how to do that it's a great place to wrap us up thank you as always to salty pretzels for our intro and outro music make sure you give it a listen if you want to check us out on twitch and twitter i'm at twitch.tv slash lord tupperware ben is at twitch.tv slash mr metronome mr is spelled out and you can check us out on twitter under those same usernames and you can tweet at the podcast at lords of limited if you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later.